0: Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode of DC Power Hour. We're excited to get right into it here with George and Alan and the the Battery Blarney duo to talk about a really interesting topic. Once again, battery monitoring and data analysis. Something I know George has spent quite a lot of time in his career on that topic, and uh, I'm sure Alan's got a lot to say as well. So we'll jump right in. How's it going, guys?
1: Pretty good. Living the
0: dream, as I say. Excellent, George. You want to kick this one off, since this is, I think, a topic near and dear to your heart.
1: Well, yeah, it, it is. It's. Um, I, I think that the the whole reason for wanting to talk about it is is that there is still, amazingly, a, a complete misunderstanding about how to look after batteries. One of the crazy things about life is that there's absolutely nothing that we do or are involved in that does not at some point involve a battery to try and keep it operational. From the, uh, the oil platforms that are out there pumping oil in the middle of the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico or off the coast of Nigeria, which I know quite well, there's a battery. There's a battery, That battery is there in order to maintain service in the event that we use the elect- lose the electrical utility. And yet, the batteries are by far the most disregarded piece of equipment. A lot of times, the only times they're ever looked at is when they don't work. Now, we, uh, we used to, interestingly enough, within the US, we used to have by far the most reliable telephone service in the world. The old Marbell AT&T um, worked perfectly. And one of the reasons was that within that organization, every battery almost had its own uh, battery technician looking after it. And they, they watched them, they, they observed them, they measured them, and when things were not right, they changed them out. But unfortunately, when, uh, when my bell was all broken up, one of the first people to be disposed of, shall we say, was the battery technicians. And the reason was very simple. They couldn't put a profit centre to them. They didn't understand the concept of reliability and availability is a profit center. If you are not supplying that service you're supposed to, you're going to be losing money. That's another subject we could talk about one day. So we've lost effectively over the, uh, since the the breakup, we've effectively lost all that knowledge base that continued um, for some time afterwards as they went and found other jobs. But today, you know, you are down to uh, regrettably old geezers like Alan and I are still the ones that remember what it used to be like. And uh, unfortunately, even with the training I'm doing, uh, I just don't see that we can ever achieve that level of knowledge that we, we had. So we're going to have to replace it in some way. And we've been trying to replace it for almost 30 odd years now uh, in an electronic format. But again, the problem with the electronic format is that the, uh, while it may collect all the data that the technicians used to collect, it still relies on somebody with, in many cases, a lack of any battery knowledge to interpret the data that they are seeing and make a decision. I think that's a good introduction to where we're going to be. What have you got to say on that one, Alan? Well,
2: as you know, uh, George, uh, I've lived through battery monitoring from the concept where we are at the moment but uh, you mentioned the bell companies breaking up uh, the 1983 that was and kind of there's a perfect storm brewing then as well because the valve regulated lead-acid battery had made an appearance initially by developed by gates rubber company here in the united states and i believe it was uh British Telecom and Chloride in the UK, but these batteries were kind of maintenance proof. Uh, with the good old vented lead acid batteries, flooded batteries, you know, you, you could tell a lot from just inspecting the battery itself. You know, you could look at the plates, you could look at sediment, you could look at electrolyte levels, things like that. But uh, when they of regular lead-acid batteries came along. Roughly about 1983 as well, they came into the fore. You couldn't maintain them. So a lot of clever people, and a friend of mine and our special guest today, uh, Glenn Albert, in my opinion, was the, the forerunner of ohmic measurements. So monitoring a lot of parameters, including the uh, ohmic measurements, uh, which was, for those who are not familiar with the term, it was a kind of compromised term, and it described the three basic met- methods of measuring the internal resistance of the battery, and that was DC resistance, conductance, and impedance. So that was kind of, in my opinion, where battery monitoring Uh, really came to the fore. In the old days with the ventilated acid batteries, you and I have been in many a telephone central office, George. There was nothing connected to the battery, except maybe sometimes a a temperature probe or something like that. And the 1983 was kind of another, another part of the perfect storm in 1983 was, batteries were coming out of controlled environments of the telephone central office and even the mainframe computer rooms and they were being deployed in remote locations. Uh, they were de- being deployed in locations that did not have any personnel there. So people said well is there some way we can monitor these remotely. And uh so there we had the, the things you know not only that the VRLA batteries were being Pushed on the people who employed batteries in the mobile location. This is your answer. The marketing folks did a great job. The customer wanted something smaller, lighter, cheaper, and maintenance-free. And boy, the marketers gave them that. Only problem was it didn't really work too well. So hence the another catalyst for battery monitoring. So that's a little bit about the background. So maybe, George, you'd like to take us a few steps forward.
1: Well, uh, what I'll do is, before I just start moving forward, I I will want to, um, a little bit of history was that, uh, in fact, there is a guide to battery monitoring developed by, in those days, the IEEE Stationary Battery Committee of the IEEE. And you were, in fact, the first chair of 1491. And... uh, It's interesting, I still sit on the committee. So they've managed to retain two obnoxious Brits to try and keep them in track, on track, shall we say. But yes, you're right. It became a quick realisation, and you're also correct, that Glenn Albert was one of the pioneers of it and also a good friend of mine. He hasn't forgiven me yet for not speaking Danish, and he also, I don't think, has totally forgiven me for spending the last 10 years of my life working for his biggest competitor. But we, we, did, we did make up. I pointed out that he hadn't offered me a job. So that was why I was working for the competitor. But anyway, that's part of history. So we, we all know each other. But the whole key to this is, is that we can actually, you know, today it's very easy to collect that data. Uh, modern electronics are wonderful. You can measure almost anything you want to, and you can collect data. The big problem is, how do you actually interpret that data? And how do you make sure that the data you're collecting is accurate? So those are some of the challenges that come for uh, any company trying to design a battery monitor. The biggest, I would say, the biggest problem we probably have with the monitoring side is the noise. That is present on a lot of modern electronic systems. If you ever look at the battery on a large UPS, for example, there is quite a high level of noise and ripple on there. And the trouble is, it's no longer just we always think about noise and we talk about even within the standard. We are the the, rec- the guide, we're not a recommended practice yet, not yet. Within that, it talks about ripple and it people tend to treat ripple as being the, uh, you know, 50, 60 hertz or multiples thereof. The problem is that modern chargers are high frequency and the level of noise that now is on there is in a totally different range. And when you're trying to measure microvolts across a connection, it starts to become a little bit of a problem on occasions. So, uh, you know, you have to understand that the data you're collecting has to be interpreted to take that into account or understand how the manufacturer has filtered it to try and improve it.
2: Well, George, before we go off on uh, that, concentrate entirely on uh, ohmic values, uh, we've got to remember that we're talking about battery monitoring here. And as you rightly pointed out, uh, IEEE 1491, a very useful document, it has uh, 17 parameters, at least 17 parameters that can be monitored. On a battery, and it explains you know these parameters, how useful the information is, and everything else. So, and only one of those parameters is omic power.
1: Hold on, did I even mention omic measurement when I was well, talking? Well, we're talking, we're, we're heading in that direction, George. And no, I'm we weren't trying to, uh, edge no, it we up. weren't. Well, we've already talked about Albert. And, no, no, we, we talked Albert about Trump, Albert, and then my. BTEC, which is the other company I work for. But it's, we're not talking about omic measurements. What we're talking about is how do we analyze that data we collect? Because the battery monitoring systems, as you point out, have the ability to collect all these different parameters under operational conditions. And it's the interpretation of that data. One of the problems we have is that you know, when you initially were involved in setting up uh, and, and putting the stuff together in 1491, as was the habit, as was the policy, even till today, there was this idea of having to set limits against which values could be measured. And that, to me, is still uh, is the biggest bugbear in my life: is this idea that everything has to be a value, and if it hasn't exceeded that value, then there's nothing the matter with it. So no the that's, oh that's make, really, make measurements are not the the uh, you know the the key element that people want to make them.
2: Well, before I was rudely interrupted, George.
1: Uh, of course.
2: <laughs> the uh, what I was leading on to really was uh, these are the values that can be monitored and how we monitor them and how we analyze that data. But I did a little bit of research the other day and I went down to the. Batcon website uh, where you can access every paper that was presented at Batcon. Very useful resource. And there was about 20 battery monitoring, some that I'd forgotten about, some very, very good ones. And uh, I remember at Batcon when we used to review the papers, we used to say, oh goodness, not another battery monitoring paper. But anyway, there's a lot of information there. But what I was leading on to is that monitoring various things I remember at one batch conference uh, we asked the a, a panel you know if you could only measure a couple of things on a on a batch what would they be and overwhelming me they they came up with two things that uh, could be monitored and one was temperature and the other was current flow current and you know I was a firm believer in that in that if you looked at these two things uh, in 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 Unison, if one changed and the other didn't change, you had a problem and and to me you know that was the basic form of battery monitoring but now all our monitors or the all the better ones they look at a host of, of values and you were reading you were leading in the right direction George is the key is how to be able to analyze them so do you think that uh, battery monitoring uh, has progressed uh, in that direction where you can be use maybe machine learning or something like that to uh, make it easier to monitor some of these values
1: oh well, it could be but i think it's almost time we introduced our uh, guest for today because i i know that he's got a lot of uh, interesting thoughts on this process so so why don't you do the honors?
2: Well, good morning, Fran.
0: Good
2: morning, Fran. Uh, nice to see you again. We've both changed a little bit since we last. Yeah, night. I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, I do like the goatee, right? All right. <laughs> but uh Fran, I've probably known you since the concept of Batcar, maybe a little bit later, Fran. And I've always admired Fran because he was kind of a level head on a on some shoulders that were going where others were going in ten different directions, Fran was concentrating on uh, what he knew best and what he was good at, and that was battery monitoring and uh, he I believe that he, he was instrumental of working with uh, Plan Albert in the early days but Fran, you've gone on to better things now you've got your own company, so maybe yes, you can sure. give us a just a one minute overview of what you do and then we'll Get into the nitty-gritty.
3: Yeah, well, thank you for the introduction, first of all, and I very much appreciate the invite. We've got some pretty smart guys on this call, and I'm honored to be joining you. Everything that I do is based around this whole dialogue you're having. Battery monitoring, uh, all different types of monitors, and boy, you guys have brought up some interesting things that I could talk on for a long time, but the analytical part of it to me is what's needed most. (laughs) I can't tell you how many sites I go to where they have the data. Um, And unfortunately, it doesn't get paid attention to until something happens, right? Uh, Something bad happens on a site and then everybody kind of looks around and says, what happened? Probably nine times out of 10, the data was there. Nobody was looking. Call it a lack of education. Possibly part of it, call that a lack of understanding, especially in sites. I go to some sites, they've got three, four, five different types of monitors on one site. Imagine trying to deal with that. If you're an operations guy responsible for the reliability, and you've got to be able to understand five different sets of hardware, understand five different software packages, And as you have been kind of pointing out some of the discussions this morning, the measurement techniques, because they're not all the same. Uh, And with that, you, you have to have a fairly decent understanding of what you're looking at and where your risks are. And risk to me is probably at the top of the ladder when I'm talking to a customer. And going over things with them again. I don't want to drag on too long here, but if you can do the analysis and determine the actual watt per cell requirements to support the actual load that's going on, you kind of get a much better picture in terms of where your risk is, especially in the, in the data center world where I'm primarily focused. A lot of these systems are put in with a beginning of life of five minutes and. <laughs> You gentlemen know as well as I do, come end of life, that number is far, far less uh, in terms of load supporting capability. And unless you go through the actual calculations for what's truly needed to support the load, you really don't understand where you're at, especially in parallel strings. Single string, it's kind of straightforward. But you see so many of these systems that are designed right to the max the loss of one string can put an incredible burden upon the rest of the system. And again, I think that's part of this whole picture. From my standpoint, when I'm having dialogue with customers, I try to make them aware of that. And primarily in a simple mode, I'll say to them, just please understand this isn't a linear relationship. In other words, if I have four parallel strings and I'm at X, watts per cell if i lose one string i'm not getting three quarters of that value it's just curve it's not a linear relationship and when you kind of go through and and you plot those with them they are a little more attuned to uh being more aware and maybe focusing a little more on the systems and the data side of it
2: yeah you as you said your most of your experiences with that data center with UPS applications. And I worked for four years for a large, large uh, UPS manufacturer. And it took me about a year into, into that employment to realize that UPS manufacturers are, are their own worst enemy. They create a lot of prop. And you touched on the battery reserve time. To me, it's nuts to have a battery reserve time of five minutes especially on a large UPS system. With that five minutes, very quickly becomes one minute. Then the next thing you know, it won't even ride through the generator start. But uh, telecom folks knew how to do it properly. And and I've always wondered why the UPS folks didn't learn.
3: I think I can answer that in in, in a dollar sign symbol. (laughs)
2: Okay,
3: yeah. I mean, it's all about cost.
2: (laughs) Which leads me on to something I know you and I discussed before. And uh that's the uh, they're putting these batteries in the cabin that you can't get access to basically. Or well, there's no there's no ventilation. A tremendous problem. And uh maybe you can tell us about the problems of trying to connect a battery monitor to a UPS system. And then I've got something to uh did a little bit of research, so I've got something to tell you about it as well. So, Frank, can you talk about, you know, access? Uh, cabinet access?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, open rack access, always the uh, calorie calculations are going to be far, far less than, you know, for PB than the contained cabinets. And, you know, you think about six sides on a box and you open one side up. All that energy, if something bad were to happen, is going to come out the one opening, which is what has driven up, in my opinion, all these uh, calorie rating requirements. Now put, you know, 40 typical UPS system, 40 12-volt jars in series in a cabinet, and uh, just do some minor things, uh, you know. And one of the most common things I see on the maintenance side is, If there's cell quarter testing, or I shouldn't say cell quarter, but portable testing with probes and a a portable monitor, the sense leads are always bumped off. So you come back in afterwards and you notice the symptoms of a couple jars missing or whatever. You know what the symptom is, but to try to get inside of there and reconnect that wire is not an easy task today. If you're not going to shut it down, you're going to need an EEW permit, uh, depending on the customer. 40, uh, sometimes 60 cal PPE requirements just to open the doors to put that back on, let alone trying to work in that environment. If you imagine with the big gloves on, the big face shield and whatever, trying to pick up a a little connection and put it back on a battery terminal, that creates its own set of problems. And in some cases, it's almost increasing the risk because you can't really see what you're doing. You can't manipulate dexterely with your hands what you're trying to do certainly puts a lot of challenge on the maintenance side. And what I find is the customers will leave it like that to where in next time to do maintenance because they don't want to deal with all of it. They don't want to have to go through all that. They just say, I'll wait till these guys come on site. We'll deal with it then. The downside of that is you're missing the importance of the battery monitoring during that period, right? Because it's not doing what it's supposed to to its fullest extent.
2: I know you said your financial engineering is behind a lot of it, uh, but I've always wondered, why is something been done? Why is, isn't something being done about? Telecom folks do it right. Utility folks do it right. So anyway, I a little. remember seeing something somewhere. I eventually found it the other day, very deep inside this thing here, which is the National Electric Code. Okay. And it's... Uh, Section 480, uh, which is for storage batteries, 480.4 is precise. And there's a little paragraph there that says, part D, it says accessibility. The terminals of all cells or multi-cell units shall be readily accessible for readings, inspections, and cleaning. where required by the equipment design. And this goes on yeah. to another couple
3: of things. Well, so, that, that brings up a whole other area versus front terminal and, and top terminal. And my
2: mind, these folks are in violation of the National Electric
3: Code. Well, yeah. I think there's a lot of room for interpretation. <laughs> what is readily accessible? Uh, like I say, if it's a front terminal battery, my experience with those is that the maintenance is much, much easier to deal with. And the risks are much less because we're not having to deal with limited space uh, between the battery and the shelf up above it for batteries that are two to three back in terms of the shelf, right? If they're front terminal. And again, I, I'll share some of the customers get around this by opening the breaker, using the big EEW disconnects, you know, those big Anderson yeah. disconnects, and then they can break it down into the 48 volt groups, take off the PPE and do their thing. Again, the front terminal, in my opinion, are much easier to do the uh, the maintenance both for the for the batteries and for the monitoring because most of the time it's a sense lead off and there when it comes to the monitoring maintenance is needed to be done
2: yeah, unfortunately about 90% of ups batteries are top terminal batteries and the other problems in that not only just lack of uh, access but uh, you are right and if if they would just make the, the cabinet so we had Anderson connections and could disconnect those into less than 50 volts. Although I do believe, George will probably correct me, that NFPA 70E is moving back towards 100 volts again, which makes sense to me. But uh, you know, there's been no real research done into arc flash with uh, low voltage DC. When I say low voltage DC, I'm talking about below 240 volts. So anyway, Fran, is there any other impediments uh, that you see or come across every day that uh, you know, prohibits uh, or makes uh, battery monitoring difficult?
3: Uh, well, with respect to the cabinets, again, I, I think that, again, my opinion, just from my experience and, and what I do, when the equipment that's doing the monitoring is mounted on top of the cabinet, there's a definite maintenance advantage there. I can take a cable harness off and, and read the voltage without having to open up the cabinet and know whether I've got a connection issue inside or whether I've got voltage at the back and there's something in the unit. If I have to do that work inside of the cabinet, it's just a whole nother ball game. where, again, to open up those doors and access equipment that's embedded inside of the cabinet, that just becomes more labor-intensive, more time-consuming, and, and more difficult. I think there's definite advantages to top-mounted equipment for a cabinet. that answer your question?
2: Yeah. Um, I'd like to bring George in here. I don't want to be acting like the moderator of this, but I'd like to bring George in. Maybe you, you can throw some questions up front here. So you don't have to worry about it. You know, So why don't we use this uh, expert advice since we're getting it for nothing?
1: Expert advice? Are you sick or something? No, you got a fever. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Alan, you are definitely improving from your uh, original bout of COVID. You're getting back on top form. It's just becoming more interesting. I think that, uh, you know, I've got no comments at all about what Fran has been saying, because I have suffered through all of the things he's talking about. Unfortunately, I'm going to come back to one of my problems is that when you try to put everything on top of the cabinet, you end up with longer wires and then the noise starts to become a much bigger problem. The one thing I learned from my short time as a director of engineering for a power systems company was that um, everything is a compromise. What you have to do is decide which of the compromises you're willing to accept and uh, what are you going to do about it. And I'll be honest, when you're dealing with a bunch of engineers, that's not always the easiest thing to do because, uh, you know, they will, they will spend the time telling you that they are measuring this absolutely accurately. And just because the graph looks up and down all over the place, that's exactly what they're measuring. And that's what they want you to show to the customer. And at the same time, the customer is looking at it and saying, that's not what I see on my, your competitor's product. And um, you're obviously not measuring it correctly no it's um that's some of the challenges so but it's to me it's probably more important to uh start talking about the how we actually do this analysis because as as I indicated earlier i have developed over the years of doing analysis this dread of limit based concepts because quite simply there are no limits if you have uh 240 cells, and in one of those cells, the characteristics are changing, no matter which, whether it's voltage, temperature, ohmic value if you want to, but any of these things that change is an indication that that cell is not behaving the same way as all the rest of them, as it did when it was first installed and, and manufactured and installed. You, don't, you shouldn't need to wait until this has reached some arbitrary limit. Before you take action and correct it, because at that point it becomes a potential point of failure. If it's not behaving the same way as all the rest, then it definitely is a potential point of failure. And you know, Alan, you said that one of the problems we have with cabinets is that they, they get much hotter. Oh well, yeah, if you measure temperature on every unit, guess what? You get a much better picture of that. And if you actually calculate the potential loss of uh, Capacity due to overheating. In other words, remember, we lose 50% of our capacity if we operate at 10 degrees above 25 degrees C. So, if you start looking at that, you get a much better indication of how well that battery cabinet is going to behave. What's your thoughts on that one, Fran?
3: Well, data analysis is the crust of my business. So, I, I'm on your team on that one. Again, it's my experience that. The owners of the equipment are well intended. What I find, especially in the data center world, is they're usually jack of all trades and they're asked to be the master of all of them, which is just not realistic. And with that, they tend to rely that you said it earlier you know, there's not many battery people left in the world that can give a comprehensive explanation or understanding to them when they experience something. I think. By doing good data mining for those systems that have historical trending data, alarm, all of that encompassed into their, their data storage topography. That's what I do. I've written my own software that kind of pulls that data out. The, the things that I have seen over my years of experience that seem to be very important for identification of issues and and stopping the, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but the pain that I see the users go through is they get numb to alarms and it doesn't take long uh, for them to do that. In other words, they keep seeing an alarm over and over, even though it could be valid. They just kind of reach a point where it becomes numb to them. Uh, they're, They're not really paying attention to the alarms anymore. That's part of the analytical side. If I do, or someone, not just me, does a good job at really taking a look at the big picture and looking at the frequency of things that are going on and making adjustments that help to keep them in, in an environment that they may be more attuned to responding, then that's a benefit because now when a real alarm does come up, they tend to have a little bit more sensitivity to that. And take action again. These guys and gals are typically way overstrapped on site with responsibilities. Uh, So this is a very small niche, and it's usually the guy who drew the small straw who who gets the batteries responsibility. Again, in my experience, most of them really don't have any experience with that, and uh, that's where they tend to lean on you and, and you know ask you for help when things come up and with the data. We're able to help them analyze it, uh, pick off trends, get early detection, common fault indicators for pending issues. Uh, you know, you mentioned artificial intelligence earlier, or adaptive learning, or whatever your term was there. Those things are all obviously beneficial. And again, if you can trim down the—I uh, don't want to say false alarms, but the nuisance alarms. To a point where they're getting alarms when valid concerns come up, uh, then I think they, in my opinion, become much more reactive and uh, proactive, too, and can really do a better job of trying to manage all those systems. You know, you shared with me earlier and our customer who had 11 PCs sitting out there with all different systems on them and with the hands up in the air saying, I can't be expected to be an expert on all of these that's a real challenge. And, and I've got some sites, just as you said, not with 11, but I've got some sites that have four to five different pieces of equipment and they, they're different. They act differently. They're maintained differently. Their thresholds are different. Uh, to expect someone as a technician level or, or maybe even an engineer level to be able to manage all of that, that's a daunting task without some sort of expertise in reserve. And, uh, you know, I think that's where the guys like us have value. We can help them.
1: I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, you and I both come under what uh, today is referred to as, um, you know, a subject matter expert. Unfortunately, one of the things I've discovered uh, while I've been doing this training uh, over the last few years since I joined Eagle Eye is that we're actually getting, the, I believe, we're starting to get the training wrong because what's happening is that the most of those organizations that I've been used training for uh, use people to go out and collect data and then send it to a subject matter expert to review. The problem is they have no idea what they're collecting. They have no idea what they're actually looking at. And many times the data is probably skewed because there was a problem with the collection point. And also the subject matter expert never actually visits the site. So the actual critical factor of doing a visual inspection does not exist. To me, you cannot get away from it. A visual inspection is one of the the most important things. We we actually had a course where um, uh, I did, I do a piece on visual inspection And one of the the technicians went and did a uh, visual, uh, an actual inspection later on, sent these pictures back of a battery that was clearly had been out of service for at least three or four years. The stuff was all piled up on the bottom of the cell. And yet it had been maintained on a regular basis. So I think part of the problem is that the modern, basically modern industrial training, consists of teaching people how to do things but not why they're doing it and i think that's that's what we are missing we need to start improve that training these people that do any data collection the people that are actually working with the equipment they need to understand why they're doing it then they will not only will they be beneficial to the company but they'll also get interested in it that's the point i found is that when you start introducing people to the why and understanding what it's all about, then it starts to make sense. You know, yep. even I, I did one training where three young ladies that actually were putting uh, Alba Cellcore data into the uh, the database that was their job. They had to sit through three days of my training, and at the end, of it, I apologized to them because you know they had to sit and listen to me for three days. <laughs> but they yeah. said they said it was. They actually understood why they were doing that now. And two of them said, look, you see, George, we, we now understand that if we see a reading that is way off, we're going to flag it. We're going to tell somebody. We're not just going to leave it there. Yeah, And I think, you know, I felt you know, they'd suffered a lot, but at least we had taught them something, and it was going to improve the reliability of those battery systems.
3: Now, do you find that you, your customers are, are open to that? and want to partake in that, or I'm just curious because you're primarily on the utility side. What's the reception to that when you say that?
1: Not at all positive at the present moment, although the, the utilities are probably better. It's one other customer we have that is um, very reluctant to, to get out. They are so, I'm not saying who they are, but they're just so very structured. This is the way they do it, and this is how it will be done. It doesn't matter how wrong it is. Things like, uh, as you'll understand this one, things like doing discharge tests every year on a, on a VRLA cell, because that's going to improve the reliability. And I keep trying to tell them it's not. In fact, you're going to damage it, because if there's any inherent problem within it, the moment you do that discharge, you've just added to it. You now, I've seen so many systems that were, looked perfectly OK ahead of time. You did a discharge on them, or there was a discharge. And you immediately had a whole bunch of cells whose characteristics changed because of it. I'd like to use the last couple
2: of minutes here, but talking about inhibitors to maintenance. uh, And I believe it starts when the battery is first put into service. You know, if if the battery is not given a initialization charge and the monitor is stored on the battery, you know, as soon as the battery is installed, you, know, you haven't got a fully formed battery. You're relying on data that is not accurate because most manufacturers recommend, or IEEE recommends it, depending on the chemistry of the battery, that you wait three to six months before you establish your baseline data. So people are putting monitors on systems with inaccurate baseline data. Basically, the other thing that I find is an inhibitor. I mentioned earlier that you know the two things. I certainly agree with a lot of other people more smarter than me do as well, is that, you remember I said the two things you could monitor that would give you the most information is uh, battery temperature and battery current. Okay, so that leads to another thing, especially with a large UPS system. Where do you place the battery temperature probe? Because if you're in in the middle of a cabinet where it gets hottest, uh, you're going to see the most extrusions. Also, that you're trying to measure current, float current in, in, in milliamp. And some people say they have one current transducer or one field hall effect transducer. And they say, you know, okay, uh, we're going to use this to monitor our charge current and our float current. Come on, guys. You can't have both of the Well, I don't know what the recent developments are, but, you know, you can't really monitor no Sometimes hundreds of amps or less, and you know 100 milliamps. So I see there' was this inhibitor as well. So uh, Fran and George, where do we stand with trying to do something about this?
3: I um, picked up on your comment on baseline because uh, I see that regularly, um, where if I get into the analysis of a site, I'll find either they didn't purge their old data from a change out. So, you know, they've got six years of data, they change their batteries out, but they never purged the old data and they never readjusted the baselines of the new batteries. That's one issue I see. The other one is exactly what you said, formation. And part of the things that I do is review the rate of change from the baseline. And if, it, if I see it trending negative, looking for that point of flattening to understand that, that's where the, the formation has occurred, and then readjust those baselines from that point, so that it, as you said, you know, I mean we drop 15 percent down uh, our, if our threshold was set at the beginning, we're, we're falsely elevated from where formation occurred as to where our notification points are going to be. Kind of a critical point. The data is only as good as the accuracy, right? So uh, you, you nailed it, and I and I agree 100% on that.
1: Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that at all either, Alan, which is a shame because I prefer to disagree with you. But um, the, it's the accuracy of the data and a and number of points. You, you you made a very good point. One of the problems we have, actually, is if we look at the IEEE against recommendations, they talk about 10% of the temperatures to be monitored. They don't talk about the, all of the temperatures to be monitored. And yet, to me, if you're going to achieve what you're talking about, getting the best value out of the temperature change, then you need to monitor every individual temperature. That was brought home to me years ago when we were do, I was doing a, a commissioning discharge test for, at an at and location down in uh, Virginia. And the, uh, the the service manager at the time had just been given a new FLIR camera and was dashing around taking photographs of the battery during the discharge test. And every time we had a cell start to go down, he identified the temperature change at least 30 seconds before I seen the change in the in the recorded voltage. So that told me that the temperature was actually leading the voltage change. And it's something that has stuck with me ever since. And that's why I think understanding what's happening with temperature change is a very good indicator of the potential for a cell to fail under uh, operational conditions if it goes into discharge. Did you agree, Fran?
3: Well, when I get involved in discharge testing, uh, temperature scanning, uh, I agree 100% critical especially from a safety standpoint, because the cabinet doors are off. Yeah, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes the guy shooting the temperatures is not really properly protected, at least from what I would deem as safe. But he's walking around scanning everything and and looking for those hot spots. And, And even the connection issues, which trying to read the interconnections with a battery monitor, some do, some don't. As you know, you know, the interconnection straps, whether it's an inner cell or an inner tier, have a loose connection on one of those during a discharge, and you're definitely going to see it. And the thermal aspect to me is is mandatory. I, I wouldn't recommend anybody do a discharge without thermal scanning. I, I just uh I don't think it's safe. <laughs> uh, you know, and it gives the opportunity that if something is escalating beyond a comfortable level, which again. In the pre-test discussions, that's something that, that, we're, that we're talking about with the team and saying, all right, look, all of us have the right to stop this thing. If we see something that's, that's not right and, and we think there's going to be a risk, we can do the test again later, right? So the scanner, he's got that responsibility. If he sees something that's way out of line with something else, he can call to report the test. Same with the guy monitoring the, uh, the voltage levels. Uh, one of those uh, swing low and all of a sudden go into a negative abort. That's a bad thing, and, and bad things are going to happen. I got a little sidetracked there, but temperature was your question, and yes, I, I agree, very, very important when we're doing the discharge testing.
1: I think it's important even during operational, because if you, if you see a change in a unit temperature uh, while the, the, you know the other ones haven't changed, and the ambient hasn't changed, then you have basically the potential for failure. You've got to. You you might not require. I think you you mentioned earlier one of the problems we have is that uh, producing false alarms or alarms that people get upset about. Uh, you talked about something that I've been talking about for years now, but people don't really want to listen. And that says we don't we don't talk about individual alarms. We simply talk about the risk to that battery not operating correctly. And then if you if you give them that, then you're telling them that it's up to them to make the decision of what level of risk they're willing to accept. If you've told them there's a 50% risk that this battery is going to fail under load and they don't want to do anything about it, then they can't come and yell at you when it did fail because you've told them that. Yeah. Yeah. I think one, one of the problems was that when the battery managers were, were the friends we talked about earlier, started this whole industry effectively. They did not, and they were warned off by their lawyers uh, to uh, describe, tell them about what the risk was. It was more about you've got to come up with these values and tell them if this value is, you know, if it does that. It was, uh, it was not something as, uh, shall we say, variable as risk. That, that was too variable for a lawyer, but it's where we should be. That's my thoughts on it, Alan. We' that you will let you have the last few words.: Isn't
2: that nice: This is an honor, George. giving me the last the last word. But before I forget, I'd just like to thank Fran for coming on. really appreciated insights, and we've talked offline as well, and I'm sure we'll talk a lot more offline about certain things. But uh you know we could do another hour on this. And not cover the same ground. Probably do a day on it, especially if we had if we had a few beers. But so, you know, there's a lot of things we haven't covered. It's almost impossible. So maybe we can we can do it again, maybe six months down the road or something like that. Because one of the things I, I really want to know myself is that if, what's the latest development in battery monitoring and battery monitors? You know, where are we going? Have we solved any of the problems? You know, are are we monitoring every unit? Are we temperature of every unit? Do we have current transducers that work on wide current gaps? Uh, So anyway.
3: If I could add one comment to that, not to interrupt you, but and I think a a, a vital aspect of that is where is the battery technology going for the locations? There's a lot of technologies coming up with the zinc, the sodium, I mean, we've been talking primarily lead acid, lithium, uh, you know, how do the monitors fit into those domains? Uh, and I think this is all going to be a learning ground, quite frankly, until we get some history under our belt.
2: You're certainly right. Uh, I don't think we need to worry about lithium because I think they're going to go away uh, before we come up with a satisfactory monitor for it. But those other technologies we talked about, uh, I, I, I like the zinc. I uh, like the salt batteries, solid state. So, you're right, how do how do we monitor those? Yeah. Yeah. So, that's another discussion. Yes. But, uh, yeah. I don't think I'd be leading it because it took me 40 years Fran, to learn about lead acid batteries and uh I'm not going to start learning about another technology. Yeah. So, Understood. your final word, David.
0: Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Fran. And uh, we'll have to look for a <laughs> follow-up conversation here in the coming months. So thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, gentlemen. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.